Amen. Amen. She told this story in science school class, and, and of course I um, knew what to expect this time. That's right. She started this story in science school class, I'm going, where's this going? I don't know. But a miracle occurred in her bathroom. That's the story. She didn't know what else she was going to do laying there. She tried to get up, fell back down a few times, and then she prayed to God, and he set her up. I told her the name of her angel is Lazarus, but <laughs> I don't know. If they, but she, the next thing she knew, she's setting up on the side of the tub. So that has been a turning point. Because, you know, Sheila's been struggling with, with um, physical issues. And so God showed her he's not through with her yet. Amen? I keep saying, I mean, you know, Paul said it. To me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Amen? If you're here, you're to live for Christ. If you die, you're with Jesus. He said, it's better for me to die. I want to be with Jesus. But I, he won't let me go yet, so I'm going to live for Christ. we got to work, folks, for Christ. He's not finished with Sheila yet. Somebody she's going to touch. There's a life she's going to be impacting. And uh, today she impacted us. Amen? Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Last four verses again, continuing where we left off. Uh, I'm enjoying Philippians. Philippians 1, 27. Let's stand together. Only let your citizenship, because this was last Sunday's word, citizenship. Like I said, Paul is very specific on what he chooses with his words. We have conduct in most of our translations. Some of them say conversation. But the word in the Greek is citizenship. And we talked all about being a citizen. Okay, let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Conflict being that he is in prison. They saw it when he went to Philippi. He was in prison right there, and now he's back in prison again. All right, may God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you that we can once again come and call on you and ask you, Lord, to fill us with love, agape love, and all knowledge and discernment. <laughs> Lord, that we may grow in fruits of righteousness, that we, we may become more like what you want us to be every day so we can prove the will of God and, and let it flow through our lives. Help us, Lord, not to stop short of being all that you want us to be. And today we're reminded that there's a host of people that are being persecuted for their faith. And Lord, we just pray for them in a special way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. Once we get past Paul's emphasis on the Christian citizenship, most of this session that we are section we're reading about is, is about opposition to Christianity that the Philippians faced. And since the death of Christ, I'm just going to say this because it's interesting because I got into this suffering and opposition. I already know next Sunday is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, first Sunday in November. And so just start Googling persecuted Christians or how many Christians have been killed or all these kind of things. And you begin to see stuff that begins to pop up that is very interesting and they have things for you to pray about, etc. Um, but... Since the death of Christ, 
Christianity has faced constant opposition. Constant opposition. I'm not, the Jewish people are one thing. They faced opposition from a long way because they were God's chosen people. But Christ started the Christian church with the disciples. And since that, for the last 2,000 years, at about 35,000 a year, 70 million Christians have been killed. Think of how many people there would be in the world today if those 70 million had lived and had brought other people to Christ. From the disciples on, Christians have been killed. That figure is staggering. And you think, well, maybe it's dissipated because you know the Romans and, and we know that. Well, that was interesting. I was looking at a figure of the Holocaust, Jews that were killed. There was more Christians, twice as many killed in USSR. And we never hear about it. As there was killed in the Holocaust. And we all talk about, oh, how terrible the Holocaust was. Approximately 90,000 Christians were killed in 2016, two years ago. 90,000 Christians. So the opposition, folks, is not going away. Paul was on trial because of his opposition that was facing him to his Christian beliefs. Paul was writing to Christians at Philippi who are facing social opposition. Paul was not specific on the kind of persecution that the Philippian uh, Christians were facing, but the understanding is that because they were a Roman colony, and we talked about that last week with the citizenship issue, because they were a Roman colony planted there in, in Macedonia territory, they were not subject to the laws of, of the provincial government, but they were subject to the laws of Rome. And a lot of Romans lived there. A lot of the Roman soldiers, when they were put in their time, would go to a Roman colony and live there, given a spot of land, a place to live. And so when they had their festivals and their assemblies and, and their meetings in town, guess what? The Roman emperor was one of those that they worshipped, along with the Roman gods, and so these Christians that got saved by Paul there in Philippi, when they would attend these things, they would not support the function of worshiping these false gods or this Roman emperor, who in this case was Nero, but, or, or you call him Caesar, it doesn't matter, but it, they would not participate. Guess what that would do to them and the whole society? The people would look on and say, well, they're not a real Roman. They don't really belong. They don't support the system. And so the diehard Romans would think that they're being un-Roman, and they would stop supporting their businesses of these Christians, or they would even begin to persecute them or abuse them and pull, them, pull away from them. Social exclusion would have been the norm for Christians, and so they were facing opposition. Some could have even been killed. Because remember, that's what, when Paul and Silas arrived, they were stuck in prison there. And Paul was a Roman citizen, as well as being a Jew. He was born in Tarsus. So this thing about opposition to Christianity has been going on for over 2,000 years now. And here in America, we really haven't had much religious opposition. You better be thanking the Lord. And the thing that bothers me is we have the freedom to, to worship and assemble together that other countries do not have. And we as Christians have taken it so much for granted over the last two, two and a half, you know, 200 and some years that we don't even bother anymore. We're not being persecuted. We have churches all over the place. But a lot of them are closing down from lack of participation. Some of the early arrivals to America came because they were fleeing religious oppression. Remember your, church, or your school history? Oppression in other countries, and they came over here, and America was the, 
the land of the free and the home of the brave, and in God we trust him. This was a Christian nation. Sadly say, they're now calling it the post-Christian era. That means Christianity is over as the predominant force in America. Christianity has thrived in our country over the years until the last few. Perhaps the tide is changing before long. We're going to join many other countries where Christians are openly persecuted and some cases even killed for their faith. And some people see that, their handwriting's on the wall. Hopefully we will have a Christian revival here in America and return to our Christian roots. But if we face opposition, this passage will prove helpful to us. That's why I'm preaching on this this morning, Christians facing opposition. Because in this letter, Paul provided some guidelines as to how Christians should handle opposition because they were doing it. He was in it. How many times was he stoned? How many times was he beat for his Christian faith? And we just read those passages and say, what's the big deal? Because we don't understand it today in America. Our society cannot picture what it's like to live in a society that beats you or kills you or tries to if you're a Christian. It's a wake-up call to America because what we have, we're going to lose if we're not careful. So here are some guidelines as to how Christians should handle opposition. First, we should face opposition with commitment. Face opposition with commitment. Paul wrote in verse 27, stand fast in one spirit. I want you to stand fast in one spirit. The verb used here, stand fast, it gives the idea of steadfastness like soldiers. And he uses a lot of athletic and and soldier analogy here in this opposition type uh, of section. Soldiers who refuse to retreat. Soldiers who refuse to leave their post of duty. They will stand fast. The Roman soldiers were put there. They would be there or die. When they marched out, they marched out. They were the best trained. They had the full-length shields. They could make them into turtles so you could be completely covered so that, so that the arrows could not get through. They could change in a minute and become pikes. They could go and yank out their swords and charge. They had all kinds of weapons and ways and means. They had it all planned out. They knew what to do. Stand fast. They were in one spirit. It could refer to a spirit of determination, the team spirit, kind of an idea. Each Christian soldier is determined to do his or her part, to be faithful to God. But I think it really should be capitalized, stand fast in one spirit, right? And it could be. It's the same word used either way. But Referring to the Holy Spirit, stand fast in the Spirit because our commitment is stronger when we stand up for Christ through the enablement and the unity that the Holy Spirit gives. So the starting point when we're facing opposition is commitment. I am committed to the gospel of Christ. I will not retreat from it in any way. That's the words Paul has used so far in this epistle, that he is, he's not going to give in. He's not going to give up. If he lives, fine. If he dies, great. He's going to live for Jesus and the gospel. The illustration comes to mind, though, of Peter. Before Jesus died. The kind of man he was and how much he changed, especially after Pentecost. But you know what happened when they came to get Jesus in the garden? He yanks out his sword and he's not a very good, he's a good fisherman maybe. Well, not very good at that either. They were always washing their nets and they always caught nothing until Jesus showed up, mending their nets. But anyway, he would try to kill somebody and he missed the head and cut off his ear. I mean, he wasn't very good with a sword either. And then Jesus healed him, and and it says Jesus was willing to go with him, so all the disciples, what? Forsook him and fled, ran off. Well, later, 
in the evening as Jesus was uh, making his way to the midnight or the, the night trial, which was against the Roman law, by the way, or Jewish law either, did it during the night. But Peter followed afar off, warmed his hands by the fire of the group over there. He wanted to see what's going on, but he didn't want to get too close, get identified with Jesus. And this little girl comes up and says, are you one of them that follow Jesus? No, no way. Three times, the cock crows. You know the story. But Peter at that point in time was not committed. He did not stand fast. He did not have the power of the Spirit in him. He denied his relationship with Christ. And there's a real temptation for us to play down our Christianity when you're among sinners, when you're out in the world. We don't have the persecution here. We're not going to lose our lives or lose our jobs because we're a Christian. But we still play it down. We don't want anybody to think. We want to just kind of fit in. We want to be a part of. Because it's easier to fit in than to draw attention to yourself. And Paul doesn't write that any of this is easy. Being a Christian in the time of opposition. Remember, he's writing this from prison. (laughs) facing death, good possibility, but when it comes to denying your Savior, you need to start with commitment. I believe Jesus has died on the cross and that he saved me from sin, and I'm not going to deny Jesus even if it costs me my wife, even if it costs me my children, even if it costs me my job, even if it costs me my home, even if it costs me my life. And how many times Christians have had to make that choice? Because they would purposefully take their children in front of them and slit their throats or or burn them or do whatever it was that they did, hoping they would break them down. We'll let your wife and children go free if you'll deny Jesus in front of these people. You've got to know that's tough. But they were committed to Jesus Christ. First and foremost, committed. Stand fast in one spirit. Christians should face opposition, secondly, with the community. Now, Paul is big on writing about the community of believers. We spent a a whole sermon in Philippians here about koinonia, about the fellowship. Uh, Christians are not lone wolves. We are part of a group for encouragement and teamwork. And this theme continues um, along with this persecution theme and him being in chains. There's, there's a lot of themes that just go throughout this prison epistle that he wrote. And Paul wrote in verse 27 that we stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The whole idea behind this striving together is, uh, if you've seen athletes, you see, you see the synchronized swimmers or the synchronized uh, diving. There's, there's all kind of, th- you know, I look at these guys and say, how can they do that? Or I think of a volleyball team. Or a football team or whatever, but a volleyball team where, the, you know, the hit comes down and you, you bump it. Dig it out, and it goes to the second person who sets it, and it goes to the first who kills it. All in a team effort, everybody doing their part, and they rotate, and they know what they're doing. And they're blocking, and then they're serving and getting aces, hopefully. And, you know, all of this team effort, six people on the court at a time, but those cheering on and rotating in, rotating out, however the, the coach sees it needs to be done. A squad of soldiers is mentioned in a science school class about, you know, a SWAT team or, a, you know, different, different groups that come together and these, these squads, these SEAL teams, whatever, they work together. They have different jobs, different MOs. Why? They have different skill sets, 
different uh, weapons that they have been trained on. And they work together as a team. And you've seen many, many movies and pictures and whatever. Dodging here and dodging there. And somebody covering from behind. Somebody moving forward. Somebody else kicking in a door. Somebody, you know, they're trained. They know what they're doing. They know how to check for those trip wires. That's why they have that silly string. They love it. Spray it in doorways. It'll lay over one of those wires. Just so, with one mind, synchronized. One mind is literally the word soul. Uh, with one soul, you have probably seen this synchronized stuff. And how they just get it all together as if, as if it's one person. And they're all thinking the same, but it's more than that. It's like internally, they're connected Christians are synchronized as a team, hopefully we are, for the sake and the faith of the gospel. Our cause is to get the gospel message out to the sinners. It doesn't do us any good if we're all doing different things. We're not synchronized. We don't have a, we don't have a plan. We don't have a pattern. We don't know what's going on. Okay, we're going to have kids come to our church. Okay, all right, that's great. Who's going to drive the bus? Who's going to prepare a lesson? Who's going to have the activity? Who's going to prepare the food? Who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? You know, it's easy to say, let's do this, but you've got to synchronize. And you can tell you what, when somebody doesn't show up or somebody doesn't recall or somebody doesn't connect, guess what? It's hard to synchronize when one person's out of kilter. It's an effort as a team. And if it's not being prayed for, we're in trouble. So all of this works together. The world needs to hear about Jesus Christ. God has commissioned us to tell the gospel. You shouldn't have to do this alone. Take someone with you because we face opposition better in a church with community support and working with us. Why did he send them out two by two? And that was in opposition time. The other part of working together for the faith of the gospel is we must refuse to hurt the gospel message by wrong words or wrong actions. Some churches have been discredited by an individual in the church and their misconduct. I, I went to a church one time to pastor. Oh, everything's great. In fact, I started asking the boards and stuff before I go to church, well, what's the secret in the community that they say about this church? Because I found, oh, there's nothing, there's nothing. I found out later that one of the head guys in the church, his daughter, who attended the church, who's older. Anyway, I, I, but it was all over the community. She'd worked in a bank and had an affair with somebody in the bank. So that was the church where... And another church where the pastor and his son had a fight in the foyer of the church. All over the community. Spilled out in the yard. And, you know, well, that's the church where the. So when we start messing up, guess what? It begins to affect the whole community. And you get a reputation. They don't understand that that's the church where people find Jesus Christ, or that's the church where the revival have, or that's no, it's, that's the church where so and so did such and such fifty years ago. But we still remember. We got to be synchronized, folks. If we're going to win people to Christ, if we're going to do something for the gospel of Christ, guess what? Because I don't want to go through town and everywhere I go, oh, that's the church where. We want it to be a church where you're proud of. Amen? We can hold your head up. One church closed not too long ago between here and Terre Haute. Reputation, boom. 
They quit. New organization's in there now. It doesn't, oh, it does matter. It does matter. The community matters. It always takes time to get over a bad reputation, and it just adds fuels to the fires of opposition when we who are synchronized, we who are working together, have a fallout and a failure. So we've got to guard against that. The negative side is a fallout or failure. The positive side is when we work together, it becomes ministry. It becomes synchronized. I don't have to worry about somebody fixing the Youth for Christ meal. I don't have to worry about somebody picking them up out of school. I don't have to worry about somebody having an activity for them. I don't have to worry about a lesson being taken care of because it's synchronized. Amen? Paul advised them to use the community of Christians when facing opposition. We're together. We're in this. Together. Three, face opposition with courage. Very similar. Just feeding along these these words that he picks out. Paul continued, verse 28, not in any way terrified by your adversaries. (laughs) The Greek word for terrified is used here in the New Testament only in this spot. This word's not used anywhere else. So we have to go to classical Greek, and it's the word that is used when, um, uh, especially with horses, startled. And they take off, stampede, and whatever. You've seen it on westerns, you know, lightning strikes, or something else happens. They're driving the buggy, and all of a sudden somebody shoots, and, and the buggy takes off and with the four, four horses, and they race down the hill, and the hero comes and rides his horse real fast and catches up to him and pulls him, and, Right? Anybody else watch old westerns? I don't watch too many, but everyone's about the same thing. There's usually a high-speed horse chase somewhere in there. And it's amazing that all the bullets they shoot, and nobody ever gets hit. Until they meet Matt Dillon in the street of the town. <laughs> don't take on Matt Dillon. Everybody else, you know, everybody else's, their guns miss. Where'd I get off on that? But... <laughs> But Satan would love to see the Christians, right, stampede. He'd throw a rock in the middle and away they go. The horses all in different directions. All, you know, wheeling the buggies in different directions. And the buggies flipping over and crashing. And, oh, it makes good movie stuff. But when is you're supposed to be pulling together in the harness, working, stampede. Now what are we gonna do? Chaos. Panic is the opposite of courage. See, God wants us. Satan throws things at us. Wants us to get all upset. Wants us to run. Wants us to hide. Oh, pastor, pastor. And we all get panicking. Get on the phone. Call 15 people. I was at one church. I did something wrong. It went all the way around the church by phone until somebody finally had the guts to call me in and say, I'd like to talk to you about what people are saying. Stampede. We need to call the district superintendent. We need to do this. We need to do that. He'd love it if we would stampede. Panic. But generals usually choose the best soldiers for the hardest missions. You ever notice that? Why is it they don't stampede? Why is it? Because they're going to face some oppositions. There's going to be three things that show up that they were not planned for when they, they give them the assignment and say, oh, it's going to be a piece of cake. You're going to do this, 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 and this. And you're going to walk out. You're going to blow up this building or you're going to take out this leader or whatever the case may be. And they give them this special mission. We're going to take you by a sub and you're going to go in underwater and then you're going to come up and you're going to cut through this fence and you're going to 
They got it all planned out, but, but they know they send their best ones in. Why? Because their best little team or their best soldiers are the ones who, when other things are going to happen, which always does happen because that makes the movie better, but something else is going to happen, and they're going to hold steady, and they're going to pull through. And we wonder why God sends his best into the toughest situations and circumstances. So if you, you get assigned to the five-year-olds, you're God's best. Right? Or the junior high class or whatever it is. I don't know what it is, but what normally would stampede you and God says, you can do this. Because they send the best. Because he knows that you inside are linked up with the commander-in-chief. That's good stuff. Paul had seen the stampede in some of his friends. Jesus saw it with his disciples. They talked a good talk in the group. Oh, I, Peter, I, he pulled out a sword. I won't let anybody get next to you. No, I'll die first. And it says they all agreed until the, trial, uh, until the time came. They all stampeded. Jesus faced the trial and crucifixion by himself. And when others stampeded in panic, why did God use Jesus? Because Jesus had courage. Why did God use Paul? He did not stampede. All the different things in his life he faced with courage. Again and again and again. He chose the best for the hardest missions. And God is choosing us, some of us, for the hardest missions. And it may be the hardest mission is to spend your time on your knees in prayer because it seems like the devil will fight prayer about as hard as anything. I love that movie, War Room. Get in your war room, saints, and begin to pray and see how many times the cell phone and other things are going to go off to try to stop you. That's why you got to get in a war room and leave those things outside. Because we've had crisis just about every day. This week has been a week full of crisis. Letter bombs showing up every other day. And, and I mean, it's been on the news 24-7. And then the synagogue got attacked last night. And how many were killed there? 11, I think, or something like that. And I mean, it's just every day something. A bunch of refugees marching toward the border. What are we going to do? Tell you, we're facing a stampede, but the Christians need to stand firm. Know where you're standing, who you're standing on, what you're standing for. Oh boy. God had the same kind of courage of a Paul, He has it for you. And whatever you're going through, God showed Sheila that Thursday night. He will be there and help her through. Don't stampede. Have courage. Christians should face opposition with courage, and we should... See, the devil was fighting her and wanted to bring her down. Give up. God said, I'm not through yet. Number four, face opposition with confidence. This goes good. Courage, confidence. I guess it's kind of the same thing. But I just use in different words as we move on. For the second part of verse 28, Paul contrasted the two ultimate destinies, perdition and salvation. Not in any way tab, uh, terrified by your, stampeded by your adversaries, which is to them... He's talking about the gospel and serving Jesus Christ and the opposition. It is to them proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. Now, it's going to take a little bit to get to this confidence part. But he says, to you it's proof. The gospel lifestyle is to them proof of eternal punishment. But to the Christian living the gospel lifestyle, it is proof of salvation, which is eternal life in heaven. 
And when the Christian lives for Christ and opposition comes, the fact that the Christian does not back down proves to those who are persecuting him or her that they are wrong and that they're going to face God's punishment. What about those jailers that were chained to Paul for two years while he's, he's writing this letter and so on, and he's preaching to them and preaching to everybody else, and he's just telling them the truth. You're chained to me. You're going to hear the gospel. I imagine some of them didn't like it. Someone probably slapped him across the face. Someone probably yanked him with a chain. Some of them didn't like it. But he proved to them that it was real. And it also proves to those looking on that the Christian is going to be rewarded and the Christian is going to be saved and he's going to have eternal life. The way you live in the face of opposition. And just in case there's any doubt where the proof comes from, Paul adds, and that from God. <laughs> salvation, there's proof of your salvation, and that from God. The proof of our eternal destiny comes from God. Remember Paul's day, they built in Rome the Colosseum. You've seen movies like The Gladiator, perhaps, some of you, a lot of gore. But it typifies that society was full of gore. For entertainment, many Christians were eaten by lions out there in the Colosseum. For entertainment, they would bring in the best of the best who had been captured in battle. And they'd train them and work them and, and then put them together to fight against each other. Sometimes as groups, sometimes as... And they'd fight it out to the death for the entertainment of the crowd. Sometimes they get to the end, and one gladiator would be ready for the death blow, and they would hold off and wait. And then the entire crowd would begin, if it was one of their champions that was down, they may live, 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 live. But if they wanted a new champion, they'd be yelling out, die, 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 right? And the emperor would stand up. And the chants would go louder and louder and louder. And he'd, or, right? Seen that? Depicted? Sometimes it's good to see those historic films just to realize how terrible it was. I've read stories of Paul's day. Reading it is one thing, seeing it. But I want to tell you who this person is in your life. He said, there's proof of their perdition, proof of your salvation, and that from God. And let me tell you who's standing there and deciding where you want to go, and he's already made his decision. He's made his decision for you to go to heaven. He's turned the thumbs up on you. If you're a child of God, regardless of what you face here in this life, God has already decided where you're going to go. It's proof. It's from God. Live the Christian life, folks, and God's already given you a thumbs up to eternal life. Paul is writing from this mindset. He's seen this. He's experienced it. God is the one who's given the Christian the thumbs up about eternity. Because of, of Jesus' death and his resurrection, the Christian has confidence of his or her eternal destiny. We know where we go. To me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And we as Christians are so scared about dying. No, we ought to be happy we're dying. Because that's what we are living for. To be with him in heaven. And the rest of us don't want to let any one of them go. But I tell you what, they've earned it. And it's the time we say thank you, God, and let them go.
and celebrate because they've got the thumbs up from God. <laughs> but there's no doubt that the unrepentant sinner will have sentenced themselves by their choices to the word Paul here uses as perdition, utter destruction. Two illustrations from the life of Paul come to mind. Because we're looking on. And remember Paul, before he became, when he was persecuting the Christian back in those days, before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and got struck from his horse, guess what he was doing? One of the stories of his life is he's standing there guarding the clothes of the men who were stoning Stephen, right? And he observed the life of Stephen. What would Stephen prove to be? Stephen, who had done nothing wrong other than being a Christian, his life was being taken out from him rock by rock, battered and bruised and broken, cuts streaming blood. And Paul's looking on, and you got to believe that this did something to him. Because what he saw was a man who said, Father, forgive them. Lay not this sin to their charge. And then he says, I give myself into your spirit. The proof of where he was heading pricked the heart of Paul. There was no doubt in anybody's mind who was there where Stephen was going. Another story, Paul and Silas came to Philippi, started preaching the gospel, met with Lydia, who was a purple merchant, and she got saved. And then they had this lady the that was a, kind of a soothsayer or whatever, she was demon-possessed, would follow them around and wherever they would go and cause trouble in their ministry. So they turned to her and got the demon out of her. Well, that made her handlers upset. They started losing money. So they had Paul and Silas thrown into prison. Here comes the proof. We've been living for Christ. We've been preaching about him. We've been testifying about it. Now what do we do when we get to prison? They beat him, put him in stocks, Paul and Silas have themselves a little prayer meeting and then start singing hymns. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And everybody in the whole place is going, what on earth? Backs raw, blood running down, hands in stocks, feet in stocks, and the proof, proof, folks, they had the proof. To me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. God said, I'm not ready for them to die yet. Send an earthquake. Busted them free. Put them up on the side of the tub. <laughs> not through yet. Amen? That's so cool. That is so cool. The proof is in the way that Paul and Silas lived and suffered for Christ. They faced unfair punishment with confidence, and it was proof to the Roman jailer that their relationship with Christ was real, and to the other prisoners, and that jailer says, I'm, I'm gonna, what can I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Paul says, I'm glad you asked. What was it, the proof? We have confidence in God. Folks, you know where you're going. You know where you're headed. You know who's at the other end. So why let opposition stop you? Christians face opposition with confidence because we know God has our back. He's given us the thumbs up. But there's one more guideline from Paul. <laughs> we should also face opposition with a cause in mind. The cause. For to you it has been granted, verse 29, on behalf of Christ, 
not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The word granted actually means graciously given. It has in there, uh, it's a compound word which uses the word grace in it, charis. And it, it, it's built around that. So it's graciously given, grace given. This is how this has been given to you, graciously given. So you got to get that in your idea. Paul wrote that the Christian had been graciously given by God the opportunity to believe in him. Yay! We applaud that. But it doesn't stop there. I love that part. But he doesn't stop. Paul continues this sentence. Not only have we been graciously given God the opportunity to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. The same grace gave to them the opportunity to believe. And we put a period in there and strike out the rest of the sentence. But Paul said also, you have been graciously given the opportunity to suffer for his sake. Live in that in a few minutes. And he continues in verse 29, you saw me suffer in Philippi, called it a conflict, back then, and now hear that I'm suffering in Rome right now. Suffering was a part of Paul's life. So in Paul's mind, salvation, which is believing in God, and suffering in the name of Jesus, go together through the gracious gift of God. Can you see this? Graciously given. (laughs) Suffering was a regular part of Paul's mind of salvation. It's a regular part of his walk with Christ. He believed it just as much as a gracious gift from God to suffer as it was to believe. And he believed that if you believed, you would also suffer. We have a hard time in America seeing this concept. We're all about the believing, but we don't understand the suffering. For those people to get saved, it meant you believed and suffered. For a Muslim to get saved today, it was you believe and you suffer. For a person behind the Iron Curtain, believe you suffer. More were killed behind the Iron Curtain than were killed in Holocaust. I already told you that. The bamboo curtain, if you believed, you suffered. These were things that I grew up with, but I didn't understand. But now we have internet that gives you access to that information every second, if you want it. That if you believe, you suffer. In so many places around the world, if you believe, you suffer. I would honestly struggle with Paul's statement except for the phrase that he had at the end. Because we believe... It's graciously given. It's also graciously given to suffer for his sake. That makes a difference. I have to agree that it's a gift of God to believe in Christ and that it is also a gift from God to suffer for his sake, to suffer for Christ's sake. Paul wrote in 310 in the same epistle, His desire to know Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. I believe in the resurrection. I believe. I'm a believer. But the fellowship of his suffering. He fellowships with God through suffering. I want to know that, he says. Now, Paul believed if you're a Christian, you're going to experience opposition and suffering in this life. So I asked myself, so if we're not feeling some conflict, there's a reason. Either everyone we know is a Christian, which is probably most of us in the room, we don't hang around people who would be in opposition to us. We only hang around other Christians. That could be a problem. Right? Right? If Christianity is only contained within church and in your house and doesn't become a part of who you are. So either we know everyone who is a Christian and we don't know any sinners, or else if we do know some sinners, we don't let them know that we are a Christian. 
We're a silent spy sneaking around. A covert operative. I'm out here in the world. I'm seeing how bad it is. Take notes. Send a report to God. It's bad here at Great Dane. Oh, it's bad over here at Walmart. Oh, it's bad over here at public school system. Oh, it's bad. God, you got to do something about this. We're the covert operatives going around. We're not suffering. We haven't let anybody know that we're standing for Jesus. Just a thought. I don't know where you are in this, and I'm not trying to bring accusations because I suffer because my job is inside an office. I suffer. I don't suffer. That's what I mean. Because my job is church stuff. That's what I get paid to do, church stuff. Suffering is not something that I seek for. Suffering is not something that you seek for. Opposition should come automatically every time a Christian takes Christ out into the world and shares him with sinners. The devil doesn't like it, and some sinners won't like it, so opposition almost always follows when we share Jesus. But do we share Jesus? So why do we share Why I use this point? Because there's the cause. Right? The cause. We share because Jesus shared. We suffer because Jesus suffered. We die because Jesus died. The only reason to do this is for his sake. Those three words. Every Christian who has suffered and died did it for the cause. The cause, our mission, our commission from Jesus is to reach one other person with the gospel of Jesus. That is our cause. That is our mission. That's why we are alive. There's someone in your world around you that needs Jesus. And he hasn't taken you home yet because there's one more person that you can reach for Jesus Christ. Go into all the world. Make disciples, baptizing them. Teaching them to observe all things I've commanded. And lo, I am with you always. (laughs) International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church is next Sunday, November 4th. But I wouldn't wait. I would just... This week is your opportunity to begin to start thinking about Christians, 70 million Christians who have lost their lives for the sake of the gospel, who would not bend, they would not bow, they did not burn, they stood firm, watched their kids being killed, watched this one that they knew from church being torn up by the lions. Or, as we've seen recently, heads being cut off because they're Christians. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. So this week, pray, pray, pray for those Christian friends who are suffering and being killed because they've accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Make them strong to me to live as Christ but to die as gain and help them to stand firm and not give in. We may not face much opposition as Christians here in Indiana, but it is possible that it will begin sometime. I guess as far as states go, we're one of the most conservative in the nation, so we'll probably be the last one to start persecuting Christians. Thank God. We need to get out and vote and keep, keep, things, keep people in office that, that support Christian values. Amen. I'm so glad Mike Pence ended up, I would like to keep him here in Indiana, but he's, he's advising the president, for goodness sakes, a praying man. I'm not sure, you know, I'm not, I'm not into what, I don't know what religion, what, but I've, I've just heard good things that he's a person who prays and follows God. So, I mean, 
So maybe Indiana, we got ourselves a little pocket here of, of resistance against what Satan has, has been trying to do to our nation. But ladies and gentlemen, we can't quit. Just because you're a Hoosier, don't quit. I can say that because I'm not originally a Hoosier. But the more you share Jesus, the more opposition you expect to face. Some of you are concerned about family members. And I know you pray, just as I pray for my daughters. And every time there's a spark and a glimmer, oh, yes, God, you're speaking to her. I know you're praying for your sons. I know you're praying for your parents or your spouse or somebody. There's somebody close to you, a grandchild. There's somebody that you work with. There's somebody in the area of influence that you want to come to Christ. And they know it. There's some pushback. Oh, that's good. But as I challenged last Sunday, I want to challenge you again. I want us to pray together and pray separately and then begin to have a conversation. We do stuff inside the church pretty good. Let's pray and have a conversation about what we can do outside the church. Because most of them are not going to come in. We need to find a way to go out. I don't know what that's going to look like for you, but keep praying. Ask God to show you who can you connect with. Get two or three of you together, five or six, whatever the case may be. Find a way to go out and impact one more life for Jesus. Amen? One more life, one more life, because most of us, we've been around the church so long, I've been in church my entire life. I can probably count on one hand the number of times I've missed church in my entire life on a Sunday morning. I bet you it's not even five times. Just never miss. Even when we're on vacation, don't miss. That's all I know. I will feel wrong missing church. I have to be sick. And I'm not sick very often, as you know. It's a good thing. So I'm so in the church. But what can I do? Help me pray. Right? This, we've heard this from various speakers many times. I remember when that missionary came and talked about developing a third space. I don't know what it is that we need to do, but we got to find a way to get out. Get out there. Principal of the school, I saw her this week. She said, we need mentors. You have to go through training, you have to do different things, whatever. But we need people that will show these kids the love of Jesus in the school. We can't tell them that. You probably could. Come over and eat lunch with them. I don't know where we're going. I don't know what's happening, but God's stirring things, folks. She just came up with that on her own. I didn't prod her about it. It's on her heart. These kids need to see someone who's different. A lot of them don't have a dad. A lot of them don't know who the dad is or the mom or whatever the case may be. They're messed up. They don't come from a family structure that all you older folks grew up with. They need someone who cares. I don't know where to go. Let's just pray. Let's have a conversation. Let's figure it out because we need to get out and find them. I was always taught you don't go to the bars. Maybe we need to Christian team of three or four who booze has no attraction to go to the bars. 
Well, that just came from nowhere. I hear the murmuring in the ranks. We saw the preacher going to the, the bar this week. Yeah. It's funny because, I mean, I was delivering paper boy. I had one of the spots with the, I'd sneak in that dark, gloomy, smoky place. Dropped a paper on the counter. I didn't want the lightning to strike me. I'm scared. I heard about them places. Next time, you go take it in. I had paper route, buddy. Scared to death. Maybe that's where we need to be. Go in there and order yourself a Pepsi and sit back and see what God brings to your table. I don't know. I have no clue, but I just know we need to start this conversation. We need to have this prayer. Amen? Begin to think about it as a body of Christ. This is the riskiest thing I've ever thought of. Because one of you are going to go out there and say, our pastor told us to go to the bar. <laughs> I can see it now. Headlines in the Brazil Times, front page paper. Three Christians thrown out of bar for drinking Coke. And passing out tracks or something. I don't know. Well... So what? Amen. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> it's time to pray. Let's stand together. It's family altar time. If you want to talk to God about this, I believe the Holy Spirit's beginning to do his work. I've heard different ones talk about it. I've heard things said. I think God's beginning to work. He's beginning to say, you know what? There's someone in your life needs Jesus. Someone in your neighborhood needs Jesus. Somebody in this community needs Jesus. I know some of you are visiting unsaved. I know you are. But I'm hoping that there's a missionary where my daughters live that comes to them and leads them to Christ. I hope there's a missionary where your person lives. And maybe God's saying you're the missionary to answer somebody's prayer here in this area. Amen? That they're praying for. I've got a child in Brazil. I've got a child in wherever it is. Reelsville, Staunton, Centerpoint, Clay City, or whatever, wherever you're at. And, and, and I want someone to go to them. Lord Jesus, we pray that you'll help us as we bow before you this morning. We're going to sing a song, Lord, and invite people to pray. But, Lord, we just want you to begin to talk to us. Send your spirit. Begin to work in our midst. Show us, Lord, what your plan is. Show us what we need to do. Show us how we can reach out. Lord, there's so many physical needs and other things to pray about. But right now, I just want to focus on what you want to do in this service to speak to our hearts. And then we'll have another prayer here in a moment. But Lord, come. Come, Holy Spirit. Speak to us today. We have it so easy here in America. And yet we're scared to death to tell anybody about Jesus. Help us, Lord. Tell the world of the treasure you found. I'd like a number of people to come forward. If you have someone that's unsaved that you want to pray for this morning, just come, front seats, altar. Let's just spend a little time praying about the, lo the loss this morning. Would that be okay? Let's pray for the lost. Not everybody has to do it, but just a good group of people representing all of us, Lord. The Lord knows our hearts. He knows that we're burdened and concerned and We've got to start with prayer. We've got to start with prayer. Lord, we come to you today and we need to pray to you and talk to you about lost people because lost people matter to God. They matter so much that you sent your son Jesus before the foundation of the world. You said that God had sent forth his son to be born of a woman and born under the law. What? To redeem us. It was the plan. It was the plan from the very beginning that Jesus would come for the lost. You came to seek and to save that which was lost, which is us. We were one of those, but Lord, you've redeemed us. We've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. We're filled with your Spirit, and now, Lord, we want to do something which is really 
part of our DNA, and that is to talk to someone else or to pray for someone else about Jesus. And so, Lord, together we're uniting, and all over the congregation, there are people lifting up names. <laughs> lifting up names. Hear them, Lord. Hear these names. Hear these heart cries. Lord, would you reach out somehow, send a missionary their way, someone that would lead them to Christ and show them the way, and then, Lord, help us to be the missionary right here in our area, in our work, in our sphere of influence, that we can lead someone to Christ. And, Lord, we don't have to do it. You do it. It's the power of the Spirit of Christ living in us that does it. We don't do it. You do it, Lord. You do it, we pray. And so on behalf of these, we're praying, Lord, for your Spirit. Reach out, O oh God. Reach out and bring them to Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bring them to Christ. And help them, Lord, to be saved from their sins and turn from their wicked ways so that they will have the proof of salvation in their lives by God. They will get the thumbs up. They will know for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. We're praying, Lord, for that kind of confidence to infiltrate their hearts and lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Oh, God, do the work. We're just your willing servants. You do the work. Give us what to say, how to act, what to do. You do the work. We're just saying we're willing. <laughs> we're willing. We're seeking you. And we're celebrating you and we're serving you today. Now, Father, there's people that have lost loved ones. We pray for the, the Buck family today. And we pray, Lord, for, for Linda today. We pray for Lori. We pray for Esther. We, we pray for these that are recovering. And we pray also, Lord, for, for those that have personal needs that they don't share. We're thankful for the testimony this morning of how you touched one of our own right here. She testified about it. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, that's what you want to do. You want to continue to work in our lives. You've got a reason for us to be here. And I believe, Lord, that you're going to use Sheila. Yeah. <laughs> and I believe you're going to use each one of us in a special way this week. Something is happening in our hearts and lives and it's nothing other than the spirit of the living God falling fresh on us. Melt us, mold us, make us, use us. We want to serve you. Be in our worship time right now, Lord, as we begin to worship you and celebrate what Christ has done. And Lord, we believe that you are God who died for us and rose again, making us victorious. And so, Lord, we are going to celebrate that. It's Sunday. It's worship time. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for coming, praying. God bless you. Let's